映画ナイト Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Ega Night to Amateur Film Scholars Journey Through Japanese Cinema. I am your co-host Chris Luciantonio and join with me once more is Aruba and I'm so proud of you Chris you actually finally figured out how to say it. I said it on the bonus episode. I did I heard it but I did stop after you told me the show is nothing without me so. Ha 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 good because it's very true and yes welcome back my co-host Aruba Kershid. Thank you thank you I'm very very happy but uh, let me just say our film coming up Gave me a little bit of an existential crisis, I will admit. It will do that. Uh, but before that, I guess we should just say a little uh, explainer on our what our format's going to be moving forward. Uh, guys, if you don't know, there are a lot of Japanese films. They're, it's <laughs> a hundred-year industry, and we are just two people. So yeah. to cover the most possible ground, me and Aruba have decided to do a rotating uh, docket where one week we will be doing a classic, which uh, we define from the inception of cinema in Japan up until the 1980s, and then a contemporary film, 1980s up till now. Uh, last week was the contemporary one, which was Battle Royale from the year 2000, and this one we're doing a classic from 1964. Yes, so the film we have chosen, as you already know, is Women in the Dunes. Um, Directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara, I believe? Yep, uh, for Toho, starring Aiji Okada as the etymologist and Kyoko Kishida as woman. Her name, there, there is no character name it's, for her. It's Eiji, like Ega Eiji. <laughs> no, I think I said it correctly, and you should stop correcting me. <laughs> okay. You can do what you want, but I'm, I swear to God, if he come, if he appears to you from the dead and haunts you, ain't my fault, okay? Oh, I will explicitly blame you for that. <laughs> now that you've said it and put it out there. Uh, Aruba, is this your first time watching Woman in the Dunes? It is, actually. Um, I do remember very vaguely that it was assigned for a class, but I never got around to it because it was two and a half hours, because that's sometimes student life. Yeah, we cut corners where we can especially with uh longer run times but uh i never had it for a class this uh, i actually watched it earlier this year uh, of my own volition and it's just been uh going around in my head ever since waiting for an opportunity to talk about it to at any length mm -hmm. i do remember it it is on quite a bit of course syllabuses and it does um kind of it is a like a kind of a concrete classic for japanese cinema and japanese new wave as well so yeah, it's a very academic film. It gets brought up a lot. Uh, there's a lot of theory about it. It's because it had a huge uh, Western presence, but we'll get into that later. Uh, but you said something interesting right there. Uh, what kind of film is this? This is a new wave film, Chris. So a Wait, a new... I thought the French had the new wave. What, what, what are you talking about? No, so the Japanese also had their own new wave of cinema, and, like pronounced as Nouvelle Vague. So... And I know that you are dying to talk about it, so go ahead and explain what that is. Okay, this is going to be a small primer, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, the Japanese New Wave is a very deep topic to get into. Uh, there are people who have dedicated full books and 
courses and theories to this whole uh, very brief period, I'd say. It's like the standard kind of uh, movement number of years from like the late 1950s up until the late uh, or late 70s to early 80s. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's the kind of forefront uh, prominence of auteur-driven cinema within Japan. Uh, it's born mainly out of uh, Shochiku, that company, uh, where a lot of the directors in their graduated program, who start as like cameramen, assistant directors, and eventually become directors, uh, started making a lot of like-minded films around similar themes and topics, mostly around uh, individuality, on the uh, woman question, on the question of identity and Japaneseness, especially after uh, the occupation of America, and a lot of social issues uh, such as discrimination, such as the renewal of that same occupation, and uh, those court orders and whatnot. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting to note that you said that it was it originated from the releases of Shochiku, but this was distributed by Toho. Yet this yeah. is a staple. We'll get into that because uh, despite being uh, contemporaneous with the New Wave movement, uh, Teshigahara is kind of an anomaly among them. Uh, and by them, I mean the important directors of the movement, uh, such as uh, all-star player Nagisa Oshima, mm -hmm. uh, Shohei Imamura, Hane Susumu, uh, Koroyoshi Kutehara, uh, and the list goes on with a bunch of other names. Uh, my boy, Saijun Suzuki, he was there. Saijun! Uh, Yep, uh, Yoshida uh, Yushiniti. Uh, no, wait. No, that's not him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like he. It's kind of funny how the Japanese New Wave had this uh, movement around the same time as uh, France, USA, uh, Britain. They all had similar movements uh, around certain themes and bringing uh, kind of like an art cinema to the mainstream, and especially uh, films focused on the youth, on. Uh, things that they would be concerned about exactly and this is like where i um i've also kind of especially studied youth film in particular in particular the nouvelle vagues of the east so around this time you know this is when the youth are starting to rebel against the um like the adult life and which is not like yeah adult establishment because this is around the time where we're get like in the West, at least, we're getting images of the Vietnam War. We're getting images of what the uh, American government is doing. So thus the re uh, rebellion, because the youth are not happy with that um, or those nasty images. But it's interesting to note here that this isn't, a, this isn't exactly a story about youth. No, it's... like I, because as I said, uh, Teshigahara, he is kind of an outlier to this whole... Um movement even though that he's his contributions usually come to the forefront and have a lot of ideological power within that movement mm -hmm. uh he's was kind of in his own world among them which is probably why he has his films seem to last the longest among all of them yeah and he's also um he's also able to put his own kind of like his own kind of youth within this film within this film, if you know what I mean. So once we start talking about the little, those little mo romancy moments that we have seemed to disagree about before the show, um, mm -hmm. he he's able to, like, kind of not disguise the problem, but overlay the problem across the theme of the film, which we will get into later. 
And the reason why he's able to do that is because uh, Teshigahara, he was always an independent. Uh, unlike uh, Oshima, unlike uh, Imamura, unlike uh, Susumu, uh, they all uh, worked within a studio system before going independent at the height of their creative powers. Uh, Teshigahara was never a studio boy before uh, later in his career. All of the films that he made like during this period were uh, financed by outsiders to the industry, which is why they usually are categorized as the most radical examples possible. Exactly. So, without further ado, should we explain the plot of the film, Chris? That's the best thing about this film. It's like pretty <laughs> easy to explain the plot of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, an entomologist uh, is going out looking for a specific species of beetle in order to get his name into a field book. Like, some kind of recognition to his name. Uh, while out there, he meets with a couple villagers who direct him to a home where he can stay at the bottom of a sand dune. There he meets a woman who cares for him for the night. And then tomorrow, like the next day after, he realizes he can't leave. He realizes that he is captive. And he realizes that unless he does what the villagers say and does a meaningless task of shoveling sand for the rest of his life and father children, then he will die, as uh, along with the villagers, too. And he's also manipulated into, like, because here's the thing. The official translation is, like, sand woman. Sunanonna. But woman in the dunes comes from the fact that he's literally lowered into a dune uh, with a rope ladder, and then they take the rope ladder up, and it's never brought down again. Nope, he is stuck there. Stuck there with uh, the woman who is his caregiver, his lover, his enemy, his everything, really. She becomes his entire world. Yep. And it becomes... So we basically follow him throughout this uh, psychological distress of being ripped away from a world he knew in the city where he's a teacher um he's also he also has friends and family that he's left behind and he has now a life he, there. yeah he has a life and now he has to adjust his life to this uh do like to the dune life okay like down in the dunes where everything get dirty <laughs> yeah it's a it's a question of identity which is paramount to teshigahara he among all other uh directors of the new wave movement was obsessed with the theme of identity. Nearly every single one of his films, and especially the most uh, prominent ones, uh, like this one, uh, The Face of Another, Ruined Maps, uh, Obsessed. Uh, yes. Sorry, Pitfall. Pitfall is the one I'm, other one I'm thinking about. He is a... He has a thematic itch that he just never can scratch, and he just keeps trying and trying. The Face of Another was by him? Yep. Oh, it is? Oh my gosh, Okay. Ooh, this is so... why he's so, such lauded among the uh, new wave directors. He made he had such a solid run in the '60s. Like all four of those films I just mentioned, yes, uh, all came out within that decade. Now I want to ask you right off the bat. Sure. Um, going off from Face of Another and this film in particular, does this form of identity that he seems to be focused on, kind of exploiting, does it have to focus on the body whatsoever? Not exactly, I... at least not in this context. Uh, with Face of Another, it's much more explicitly about the body because that is about a face swap and what makes up that person, if not their physical appearance. Uh, this one is more about what society views of you. Like, that's where you get your identity from. 
At the same time, there were numerous close-up shots of the body either being covered with sand, looking rough with sand, or having water droplets on them. And well, of, of course, but that's like more of a aesthetic indulgence, if anything, rather than like a, a thematic purpose. Mm-hmm. It's, the... like, it's because like this is just a style of a film that Teshigahara has made. It's his aesthetic. It comes up in all those other films that I mentioned. He he loves like the long lateral. Uh, kind of a uh, scene setter shot he loves a uh, very intense close-up he loves overlays he loves uh uh superimpositions overlays yes yeah the in particular the close-up of the sand on like on each of the bodies but also so you think this is like a Tashigahara like aesthetic like his own uh, aesthetic identity as a director do you think would you agree with that much more so than I think other films like by in terms of like their identity theme and how they use it uh because uh, we should mention all of the, uh, the four films that came out in the 1960s made by him were all from uh they're all adapt- adaptations of novels by Abe Kobe yeah and much like Teshigahara uh an author equally obsessed with the ideas of identity and also I've noticed that um the very 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 beginning when mm-hmm. we're getting the title cards of the um of the movie we have hakon stamps um like as like in the back like um basically as the picture overlay for uh the title for the, the title, title cards, cards yeah and hakon stamps what they represent are basically your identity they are your actual it's your name on a stamp, which you use as your signature, which you use, like, when you're signing off for a mail. Like, n- nowadays, no. But back then, you know, the, your Hakon stamp was your, pretty much your ID. Um, it was very important for you to have it at all times so that, you know, whenever you got in trouble or you used your, like, you were purchasing something or um, you received mail or, you know, you know, whatever. This was, like, this was almost like your health card, if anything. Yeah, they, like we, there's a kind of like a thematic uh, inlay there because during the film, uh, we have a uh, mental monologue by uh, the entomologist about ID cards and all that they mean and how they are like the sum of your person. And yes. Teshigahara is not like exact, explicitly against that, but he likes to question it. He likes to question, like, is this really the sum of a person? Mm hmm. And we also, right off the bat, also get this, um, like, you really hear the difference in dialect between the villager and uh, uh, Junpei, as he said in the film, as he's called in the film. Um, uh, Correction, he is never called that in the film. He is not, yes, you are right. We we find out at the very, very, very end that his name is Junpei. Yep, uh, it's placed ironically as a newspaper clipping saying that he's been missing for over seven years yeah which freaked me the f out because i've been reading too many unsolved mysteries on reddit but that's another story Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's like also ironic because like we don't see his own hakon stamp within that opening so we don't know who the heck he is but you also hear the um his city dialect he speaks like a he speaks like someone from Tokyo. He speaks like, I guess, the way we are speaking now. Like, cl- uh, standard... I wouldn't say we speak American English. We're too Canadian for that. But... Right. Um, sure. 
like understandable enough while the villager has his own dialect and you know that he he has like that kind of southern charm that you would um expect from like um my stomach just growled uh from the kind like from the village you would get like that kind of villager charm and a uh, little like like am i making sense like little dialect uh inconsistencies so to say yeah like uh there is a lot of local flavor in what these uh random assortment of villagers like uh present to junpei as an outsider and mm-hmm. how he through force gradually learns uh his place among this new society uh that's what actually one thing i really uh found interesting about Teshigahara's approach to this idea is that there is a lot of talk of a village of a society which uh him and the woman are serving through their uh residence within the dune but we mm-hmm. never see this village that is true we only see their house and the only outside world we get um from the dunes like within the city of the dunes is just sand yep uh we have uh some acknowledgments of a village of people living there and we see villagers but the house seems to be completely isolated from all of that uh their struggle to shovel sand into uh containers to make for bricks is apparently saving this village they have a pivotal role in the village's future but we never see what this village is if it exists and what their customs are and we also like we also get a reveal that there are other prisoners present in this village yes like it's a very uh sobering thought that junpei is not the only one receiving this treatment there he is not special even in his prisoner circumstance am i if i'm remembering correctly did one of the prisoners commit suicide i don't remember if that is an explicit detail that said but prisoners have died in the past that is made very clear to him that he is expendable and replaceable, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So it gets a little more interesting when we discover the woman herself. Yes, um, just from the get-go, uh, Kyoko Kishida, fantastic mm-hmm. actress in this. Also quite beautiful. Um, she... Did, uh, quick, um, don't mean to interrupt you here, but did you get uh, In the Realm of the Senses vibes from her? I did. Oh my gosh, yes, I did. <laughs> she has that same kind of playful face to her, where I just felt like they, like, I didn't think they were the same actress. They had a completely different look. But yeah. I just felt like they act in a very similar way. It's Their mannerisms are actually quite similar. <laughs> I don't want to think of it in the realm of the senses right now, but it is, it is valid to say that their mannerisms are quite similar in um, their acting style, so... You do you do have a good point there, but oh my gosh, if we have to talk about in the realm of the senses, oh, Lord help me. It's gonna come up. <laughs> it is going to come up. I know it. Uh, okay, we're good. <laughs> so you're saying about the woman? The woman herself. The moment we actually lay lay eyes on her, she's dressed city like. She's actually dressed city like. I don't know if you caught that. Um, her fashion is quite city like, but her dialect in particular. She has a mix of the two. She has picked up mannerisms of the village, which which I've noticed from the uh, villagers' speech, but you can tell, like, it, it kind of indicates that she herself is also a prisoner. Yeah, like, uh... She was there for... 
she is a special example among the society, uh, especially because I think she's the only woman in this film. Yes. Um, I believe she is the only one marked uh, as an outlier by her gender. Okay, here's the thing. I'm on the Wikipedia right now. Why is the entomologist's wife play like, I never saw her. Entomologist's wife? Yeah. Entomologist Wait. Nikki Junpei. Uh, yeah. Played by Eiji Okada. But then there's a Hiroko Ito who is credited as the entomologist's wife. Okay, I'm going to go check the um, Japanese Wikipedia for a second because I'm on the English one right now. No. Oh my gosh. Is there no... There's no Wikipedia uh, entry for the Japanese one. Oh, well, that's like for like the Oh, wait, wait, wait. Found it, found it. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, you have to Google it. It's not on the wiki sidebar. Okay, I'm just going to scroll down here. So we have Otoko. He's literally like... So here's the characters, Otoko, which means man. Literally man, and we... And uh, they talk about who this man is. Rojin, old person. Onna, uh, woman, and then Murabito Tachi, which are the villagers, and they're the only ones that are the like the main characters listed here within the story. Um, and the cast here, Muranobito, Murabito, Murabito, Murabito. Okay, there is a Ito Hiroko listed in the cast, but she is not in this wiki uh, in this Japanese Wikipedia. She is not listed as a character, though. Interesting. Uh, well, we did uh, technically see a different version of the film from what was released in Japan. Did we? Yes, the uh, I believe the original uh, native release of Woman in the Dunes was a cut version. Oh, no, not a non-cut version. Uh, when it was exported to the West, which uh, is a whole other topic in itself, uh, why this one seemed to have gotten an audience abroad but yeah maybe the, there was a cut version for uh, international distribution okay okay maybe that would explain so maybe in the original one there is a wife of some sort but yeah this this ito hiroko person um does not have a wikipedia page herself oh okay then but she's listed on her own like literally she's the she is along with along with somebody named Tanaka Kyo, I think, or Tanaka Yasu. I don't know. I really don't think this matters. Yeah, but like, this is weird because why is she listed here? I don't know. <laughs> well then. So actually, yeah. Uh, speaking of that, uh, what I was just talking about the Western release, I wanted to talk about that. Uh, this was a sudden hit in the west like it got a full american distribution and it did pretty well uh both critically and uh financially yeah and apparently um Teshigahara was nominated for best director from this film became he became the first japanese director ever to be nominated for uh best director best yeah. director and then the second one was Akira Kurosawa in 1985 for Ran. They are the only two Japanese directors ever to get nominated for Best Director. Mm hmm And also he, um, the 
story itself has a 100% review, um, like a one a rating of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, if that counts for anything, but... <laughs> it really doesn't, but it's still a classic, and it's still a good, like, identifier of what is and what isn't considered, like, a canon film. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this was a cult hit here, uh, possibly because its themes of entrapment and uselessness in the face of a cruel, meaningless society resonated with the young of America at the time, who were, again, because the new wave was represented in several different countries by their own specific cultural context. Uh, there was a lot of crossover here. A lot of people saw the struggle of Junpei and thought, I feel this. <laughs> I feel this as if, like, that doesn't apply now. Yeah, it feels like that right now, except, you know, I'm not going to be uh, physically falling in love with my... In I'm not going to have Stockholm Syndrome to Laurier, unfortunately. I love Laurier, but come on. <laughs> yep. We can talk about whether or not this is considered Stockholm Syndrome. But uh, mm -hmm. but speaking of the romance there, that was also a reason why uh, this was a hit in the West, because uh, the sexual content on display was much more explicit than what you got uh, in America at the time. That is true. And also we got um, quite, like... Things that kind of, like, actually twinged at my own heart. Like, little cutesy, romancy things that I'd be like, oh. <laughs> but we Chris... Will, we, we will disagree to the end of time on this. Yes, this is not Chris a romance. On... This is terrifying. <laughs> I mean, like, for me, for my own case, like, I saw, like, the little scenes where, for example, she runs her finger along his back and he flinches because it's ticklish or something like that. And when her, his mustache grows out of it he rubs the um he rubs his mouth against her cheek like in a playful way like look i'm so scratchy like oh it's so cute i i'm blushing so much <laughs> we we should acknowledge acknowledge that uh junpei and the woman are trapped in there for weeks and after he refuses work and he refuses to let her work uh, the villagers torture them by depriving them of resources and all contact for weeks at a time. And because they're not working at the sand dune and shoveling it, uh, more and more sand creeps in and ruins their fun time. Yeah, and poor thing, he has a... This is, this is where we see one of his more severe mental breakdowns where he says, My blood is going to rot. Great line. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he basically, like... He basically continues uh fighting like like fighting within himself and during that we keep getting these foreshadowing uh violin like little violin riffs that are really unsettling to hear the soundtrack is an amazing it's addition so... to this film it adds so much color to it it's so haunting it is ridiculously so it made my hair stand up on edge cuz it was Every time I heard that little creepy violin, it sounds like it, like it's imitating a siren, foreshadowing the, I guess for a lack of a better word, the pitfall of uh, Junpei and his kind of descent into madness here. Yeah, he like uh, in the process of like processing the whole situation he's in, he kind of goes through like the five stages of grief here. Oh, oh, come on, he does. Yeah, he like he denies it he uh, tries to bargain he falls into despair and then eventually acceptance what's the fourth one fifth one 
Yeah, you listed four. <laughs> Anger, which he does go oh. through a lot. Oh yeah, he does. Okay. Yeah, it's a very uh, it's a very heated performance by AJ uh, AG Okada. Yes. Oh, good job. <laughs> I only need to be told once. Thank you very much. And uh, once at night. All right. <laughs> so, without further ado, do you want to talk about how <laughs> sand? What sand. To talk about? What is there to talk about? Just sand. This is the sandiest film in all of cinema. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't like really look, and I should have where uh, exactly within Japan this is shot. But it is a unforgiving location. A lot of it is shot on stage, obviously. Uh, it's a set, but some of it is shot out in the wild, and it looks desolate. It looks absolutely like it. I kind of have a hard time believing they didn't go to the Middle East to film, but they probably did like did not and found a more desolate place. Do you happen to know um, where this was filmed? No, I don't. I'm going to see if I can. But, yeah, it's quite, like, it, it is a, um, it, it provides, like, you, you really see the, like, I guess the, mass and the weight of the sand itself and how it kind of this the story needed it like i know it's called woman like sand woman woman of the dunes and you think of sand dunes but the actual sand itself kind of plays a rather significant aesthetic kind of um not overly like what's Mind you guys, it is late at night, and Chris has us recording, but um, it's kind of, it allows, oh crap, when it, finish my sentence, Chris, you sure, know what uh, I'm talking Well, uh, the sand in the film is like a very uh, penetrating force. It uh, cakes into their skin, it uh, mm -hmm. comes into their water supply, it uh, bursts through their roof, it's constantly uh, flowing over them. They can't, and, like, escape it because everywhere they look, it's there. Yeah, and they also describe it as something that, it, like, that they have a pure fascination with, if anything, because it's their source of money. Well, money. Um, but they also kind of, um, at the very end, kind of talk about, talk about it in a corporation kind of way, like, as a metaphor for the big corporations and talking about how the union um, won't do anything unless the sand is the work of the sand is done yeah like as, as a village not only are they like in fear of the sand because if they do not keep working with it and moving it around it will eventually crush all their homes mm -hmm. uh but it's also their only source of like significant income because uh while the people within the dunes the ones that like the village is holding essentially captive uh they're the ones shoveling the sand into like containers to make into bricks to, which then gets sent to and sold to factories to uh make building material out of concrete yeah it's also like it's also used as like the um aesthetic overlay for a lot of uh tashigahara shots the ones i was talking about with the uh form of the body you see it like l you see like massively huge close-ups of sand inside the actor's pores yeah it's like uh, caked into their skin it's hd before hd HD'd okay <laughs> I was so surprised when I saw those shots in particular because I'm like how did they get the amount of focus where you saw literally every single pore 
filled with sand. Well, it's because of another aesthetic indulgence of the Japanese New Wave was the recently available technology of widescreen. Nearly all of the di directors within the movement worked with exclusively with widescreen, and Teshikahara was no different. Mm hmm It's also, like, they also make, like, many, um, like, although the sand is the epitome of the film, they make many comments, like, the sand could swallow towns and countries, as well as, like, the sand is making my whisker scratchy, like I mentioned before. But um, one of the key um, scenes in particular for me was when Junpei escapes. And he's running, he's running, he hears a child scream, we see dogs, we see flashlights and people running after him. Sand swallows him. Yep, he uh, doesn't know the area of what he's trying to escape from, or how to get back to uh, traditional society, and he just deadass falls into a uh, sand pit. Yep, I have here in my notes, literally word for word, oh my god, he made it out, but ominous sound, WTF. And then... Below it, sand swallows him. FFS. Yeah, he. <laughs> uh, this is kind of why a lot of uh, theorists, at least the ones that I've been reading uh, for Japanese cinema, try to assign a thematic quality to the sand itself. Mm -hmm. And the most popular one, like uh, popularized by uh, Keiko McDonald and uh, what's his name, uh, Donald Ritchie, they think just just sand equals civilization. Yes, um, I. I would go for as far as to say, like, civilization, but capitalism, and kind of a, like, if anything, I kind of think of it as, like, a maybe um, a critique of capitalism, if anything. And well, a critique most... of what, like, civilization is becoming. Most definitely, uh, because the whole idea of sand as society is that it's unavoidable it is uh constantly within you it's penetrating you it defines you it uh lays out your work life your uh personal life it and it is something that you must appease or else risk getting swallowed up by it yeah <laughs> why is that holding so true right now <laughs> well, you don't you can't define society uh yeah. society has to, has to run at its own course and if you try and push against it it pushes back it really does, and, and it could also swallow. It could also swallow you alive. It's happened to many a person I know. <laughs> but another thing that, uh, but that it kind of um, contrasts with contrasts with, if anything, is moisture. We see a lot of moisture on the like. Not only do we see the close-ups of the sand, but we also see a lot of. Um, moisture and water on the bodies not only that we also see overlays of sand getting wet all yeah, throughout th this is a very sweaty film too yeah it is like the poor uh poor ag like props to that guy because i'm pretty sure it was not easy like acting with that also i don't i can't imagine you know how much sand got in, in the poor guy's eyes but yeah it's a it's a pretty sweaty film on its own as you said and it's all but it's also it shows, like, I don't know what to make of that, like, kind of contrast with the water and the sand. Because, like, the water is what kind of saves, uh, almost, say, or, like, it's basically uh, Junpei's hope. I would not say that at all. Really? When he finds the water, you don't think, oh, he would have an escape plan, or? 
when he finds the water, like uh, when he, uh, so people who don't know who haven't seen the film, uh, Junpei accidentally devises a way to uh, bring moisture up from the sand uh, when he's trying to like make an escape plan. Uh, and he dedicates himself to this and improving the way that uh, people within the village can get water. And this eventually consumes him entirely. Yeah, so much so that, uh, spoiler alert, not really, you should have watched, but so much so that at the very end when he has the perfect opportunity to escape in sunlight, he instead goes back down in order to continue working on the uh, project itself. It's a very, it's a very nihilistic ending because it's, he's essentially saying by, with that action of staying within the dune with his, uh, live-in co-worker, I guess. Um, he's essentially saying that complac complacency and convenience is much more his tone, uh, much more his way of going about life, in that rather than fighting for a new identity within like regular society, he realizes he's just trading one for another, and he is a function. He, within, to uh, society, to civilization, he is defined by what he can do, and within the dunes, he can do something. And that placates him. That's why he wants to stay. Now, can we talk about when the villagers appear? The Which scene are you talking about? Like the, I'm like talking the about, scene? I'm talking yeah, the scene, the mask, taiko, I have in quotation marks, rape dance. Yeah, this is like the, this is a very one specific... Uh, like Japanese touch to the film, I'd say, in terms of like a, a cultural touchstone, which people like if it was released foreign, foreignly, sorry, if this was released abroad, people would be able to point to this film as a Japanese film. Yeah, like this, um, this is the one where you're like, hmm, this is a this is a cultural film. Yes, this was the one scene in particular that, um, number one, we have actual like rhythmic music rather than just eerie like plucks of the violin. violin. Um, we have the villagers appearing in like above the dune, looking down on um, Junpei after they deny his request to see the, see the ocean for a little bit, and they they tell him that in order to grant his request, he has to basically have sex in front have sex with his woman, his woman, um, in front of the villagers and. Junpei, of course, desperate enough, he fights the uh, woman onto the onto the sand, of course, in plain view of the villagers. And as she tries to fight him off, there's a lot of cutscenes to a mask. Um, there's taiko taiko drum music in the background, and this scene, if if anything, this is this scene is quite um, unsettling. It's it's a very tribal scene too. It's a tribal scene, and it's also quite because you have the army of villagers just watching and laughing at what's going on. Meanwhile, she's struggling, but ultimately, you want to know what saves her. It's the sand, because she yeah. throws it at his face, and that's how he rescinds his like his aggression. You know, that's how he stops. Yeah, this is the one like explicitly malicious uh, example of the villagers uh, toying with uh, Junpei and his ideas of freedom by saying like, "Yeah, we can give you a 
like a degree of freedom we can like give you a taste of it but as long as you corrupt yourself as long as you show us the depths and your desperation mm -hmm. and we don't even know whether he like his wish would have been granted or not like we don't we don't know if like these villagers are going to be true to their word or if they're just as weird and messed up as well let's be let's be honest they are pretty messed up on, on their own for like entrapping a somebody from the city but it's, yeah, it's we, all just a game to them it is it's something like they li literally Junpei is a chess piece yeah and, and this was like a one move in order to break him yeah checkmate buddy yeah but this was like the one scene that had the actual music and the rhythm and the um really broke away from the very slow pace that the movie exhibited all throughout and that was arguably um arguably it was um led up to very 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 well and i think that scene was the perfect link it was, it was massively short in comparison to the rest of the film but it also um you also realize just how effed up this hall is <laughs> and it's it's something like aesthetic uh divergence too uh because the one the thing that characterizes the film up until that point are these like long moody shots of like a solitary figure lost in a sea of sand but in this sequence specifically this sequence uh it's like a hurried cutting is going on and we have a lot of people it's like it populates the frame with people all looking down and judging on him as there's like a flurry of, there's flurry of camera movement uh, just going around uh him trying to it appease the the society that he found himself stuck in Mm hmm it's also quite it's it's quite um this is like where we actually see the um the villagers themselves are now specific characters that we now are that we now know about we now know what kind of village this really is we also despite the fact that when he escaped he like the villagers were the one who ones who lowered him back down after escaping um yeah, and it, it's kind of, I don't know, th this gave me Big Brother vibes, if anything. It's a, it's a total display of power. Like, they know that they have this over him, and that he is desperate. So what does, what does a malicious society do other than to test your desperation, to see how much you are dependent on it? Exactly. And one more thing that I kind of want to talk about is, can we talk about um when he escapes the first time he makes a grappling hook it's a grappling hook right yeah okay so he he constructs a grappling hook we see that he has hidden them from the woman um he consistently tries to like see he tries to see if she's awake nudges her a little bit this is after they this is after she, she bathes him too um and he manages to hook the um get the grappling hook up and he manages to actually escape for a little bit but all we hear while he's escaping is that alarming ringing violin sound and we instantly know something is up mm -hmm. it's a it's very forefront uh it's very like open about what it's trying to show you and like the moods that you're supposed to be feeling at that specific time mm -hmm. now what do you what do you think um was the deal with the child and the scream and the dog i didn't well i heard the dog i did not hear any child scream 
You, what? Really? So there was a montage there. There was um, a child in view. Uh, this, I don't know if there was, it was a scream of a child or the scream of a woman, but it was a blood-curdling scream. And we just see a dog as if he's watching him. And then we see, like, the orbs of the flashlights uh, following him. We don't know if it's dog eyes or if they're humans carrying flashlights, but then we realize later they're humans carrying flashlights. I, I think that's all specifically just a mood setter. I don't think there's much to be drawn out of it. I think it's just, like, to involve you in that sudden rush of panic because if anything it does parallel to the uh rape dance so to say and in terms of like the emotional high you get off of it and, and like the, by the adrenaline rush the fast pace of the music as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it's all in all incredibly haunting um at the same time very infuriating as well i mean yeah, one face against society, like, and your options are to rebel against it and resist the norms, and maintain your individuality, or to be consumed by it and live on as something rather than nothing or less than that. It's a hard question to ask, which is why it, I find this so fascinating that this was a kind of cultural touchstone in the West as like one of the few Japanese films to break over because it's. Yeah. It's a very nihilistic film, and it's a very conservative film, too, in, like, terms of its messaging, or at least, like, the, the perils of its message, that sometimes your, your one option, because you are, you're useless, you are nothing, is to settle down. Mm hmm and especially something that's so, um, so much of a Japanese style. I, like, I'm a, actually quite uh, surprised, very happy, but quite surprised at, at its success here as well, because, um... For sure, it is something that, like, this film itself is something that is so beautifully overlaid with its um, message, but also with its, within its, um, it keeps to its Japanese roots very, very well. Um, it's able to give the viewer, give any international viewer um, the kind of, like, they know they're watching a Japanese film, but at the same time, they're also able to engage in a story that and able to relate to it because it is something, I guess, stock, I guess watching the story of, like, stock, Stockholm Syndrome, they are able to relate to Junpei on such a personal level um, and cheer for him, but at the same time feel infuriated for him. It's, like, entrapment is a very easy thing to feel something for, especially if that he's, like... Exactly, and especially that he's tasked with like such a Sisyphean thing, where he just keeps doing like a repetitive task over and over again because that's how you break down somebody. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very it's it's very depressing to mm -hmm. like come out of this film at the end realizing that like he lost, yeah. but he do he doesn't realize that he did. Oh yeah, that's... like he he was uh, conquered by that by that village and that society, but. He found a place in it, and he's okay with that. And that's the most shocking and depressing thing of it all. Exactly. And uh, just to share with our viewers, I finished the film maybe two hours ago because... <laughs> it's, it's all fresh in her head right now. Yeah, it's so fresh in my head, but I needed half an hour to just process what I just saw because I, I couldn't believe the amount of emotional distress I felt over a movie character because... The poor thing, gone for seven years. And, like, right when you realize that he 
he's stuck there that he is mm -hmm. a slave to his uh task that he is uh complacent you realize his name they, they yeah. tell you who he is and give him an identity you realize like oh so it's just not the man anymore it is uh nikki junpei who has just lost his life exactly and the image of the news uh, i don't know if it's a newspaper clipping or if it's just like title credits itself because it does not look like a newspaper clipping to me the um the police report the text of the police report um actually being read down that in itself that final 30 seconds of text i don't know what came over me when when reading that and like actually like translating it but oh my goodness that uh that amount of text was just haunting i know i've said the word haunting so many times but it is late and i have don't have very many adjectives but it's an accurate description of the film yeah you like i got goosebumps right after reading that and i i oh yeah poor chris didn't hear from me for half an hour and yeah it, it was it it's something that is still very much like still gonna probably haunt me tonight and probably won't allow me to sleep and wake up for work tomorrow thank you chris <laughs> but, um... yeah speaking of which i guess we'll just sign off now uh, this was a bit of a shorter episode than what we usually intend we usually try and aim for that hour uh mm, but, but uh do you have anything do you have anything else you want to mention about the movie or if any like aesthetic uh kind of okay wait before we sign off one more thing <laughs> If we can, so at the very end, the woman falls sick, and we find out that she is actually pregnant. Um, one of the scenes that in, in particular got me kind of really riled up with the villagers is the fact that the, um, it wasn't the village doctor, but he was somebody who sniffed her and then diagnosed her as pregnant. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure the medical logistics don't work out that way exactly and he automatically calls it an ectopic pregnancy which i don't know what that is do you do you know what that is i did at one point i believe it is uh no it's not coming to me well you know yeah like besides if you said it anyway some medical person listening to this is gonna be like actually but yeah you could see you could really see how backwards for lack of a better word this village is and in their practices you know you do like he is doing doctory stuff like he's feeling like he's saying does this hurt does this hurt but he sniffed her and then diagnosed her with a pregnancy and says he just knew well it really wants to bring into the idea that this is like a self-sustaining village and they have a folksy way of doing everything including a strange shaman man who is able to detect pregnancies with his nose yeah and the fact is this is how they this is how junpei is um where we now basically see junpei's state of mind because when they um lower the rope ladder into into the dune to get her out um so that she could have a safe pregnancy junpei climbs out has the option of running away once again in plain sunlight however chooses not to yeah, it's a it's an idea of obligation. It's an idea of uh, purpose. It's an idea of what is out there that isn't in here, because uh, that, that like typifies all of the conversations that he has with the woman. He keeps trying to present her with these ideas of uh, 
why be stuck here when there's society out there but she keeps countering with these like very folksy ideas like well why would i want that i've got everything i need right here exactly and that's what's once again haunting about this you that get... he could fall so easily into it exactly and you you're you're cheering for him to get out you know he can get out he finally has the opportunity to yet he disappoints us the viewer about it and we as a viewer can't exactly judge him either because we're not in that circumstance well because he had he gave up one set of ties for another he completely forgot forgets about his job his identity cards uh his home the things that tie him to that society and now he's got new ones he's got a he's got a baby mama now he's got uh a project that could help the entire village he's got a constant job now with shoveling sand so he has scratchy whiskers exactly <laughs> that, that that keeps you in that really does all right any other stuff you want to discuss chris uh just one fun little tidbit that i found out uh this is one of the 12 japanese films to be nominated for best foreign language film and this was a part of a three-year run of three separate films uh getting nominated one after the other for best foreign language film from japan uh it's this Twin Sisters of Kyoko by uh, Noburo Nakamura, and then uh, Quieten by Masaki Kobayashi. Okay. So this was like a huge time where Japanese cinema was on the forefront of the Academy's consideration. It, it never really kind of got back to that point again. Yes, that is... Which is quite sad, at the, but at the same time, you know, this is where... Um, Japanese cinema finally had a forefront and finally had um, this it finally allowed Western scholars to be able to grapple in their own theories and their own Western kind of theories into this Eastern masterpiece so to say and, and speaking of Western Western theorist I should say that uh, most of the stuff I pulled out for the uh, Japanese New Wave explainer came from David Desser's Eros plus massacre which is the preeminent text on the Japanese New Wave, and I suggest you all go read it. It is excellent. I'll read it. You can borrow my copy. Thank you. <laughs> but without further ado, guys, we really, really, really thank you for... I said three reallys. Ha! I'm high. <laughs> Not really. Ha! But we thank you for joining us once again to these uh, episodes. Once again, Chris and I are amateurs. We are still starting out. We really appreciate your patience when we're dealing with all of this. Yeah, it's a uh, trial and error, really. Uh, mm -hmm. for, for example, today we've had a lot of technical issues, which we're still trying <laughs> to figure out what the hell is going on. But thank you for Gu sticking with us. Guys, we promise we'll figure it out soon. It will be consistent. Um, we promise to get a little bit better each time hopefully uh we do apologize for the shortness of this episode once again we did have some kind of like chris said we did have um technical issues and scheduling issues in this at um in this case also the fact that i can't english at the moment but that will pass yeah it will pass don't worry i can english tomorrow and join us next week where we will talk about a contemporary film Chris, if you do, you, should we reveal the title? No, I think we'll just do it uh, week by week, where we do a little preview on the Twitter and on the Facebook, and then you can see eventually when we talk about the film what the subject is going to be. 
All right, yeah, follow Chris on Twitter. Um, I have decided uh, to keep – I will I will make a Twitter at a point, just not now. And I, I promise this will be the first place I will reveal the Twitter, the Twitter, because I am the coolest grandma in the world. Anyways, um, call, so can you give them your Twitter handle and our Twitter handle? Sure. It is, uh, for me personally, it is at cinemacreep on twitter.com, and for the podcast, it is at – yay chris look how much he improves guys he is going to be he's going he's going to be a polyglot like me soon now you're belittling me (laughs) and of course on facebook it is just agonite podcast and on our wordpress where we post all the episodes it is agonite podcast podcast.wordpress.com uh yeah check us all out there give us a follow give us a like and check out all our our two old episodes now uh yeah expect more content on the way Absolutely, and we're, we're both very excited to do this. So once again, thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you hopefully next week. Yeah, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.